surprised you wanted to come in uh, out of the, uh, uh, the beautiful weather. Uh, this is a great day uh, for this event uh, on the eve of uh, Veterans Day, and a good opportunity for us to reflect on Notre Dame's long and indeed storied history with the U.S. military, uh, especially the U.S. Navy. And of course, we remember uh, Father Corby at Gettysburg, uh, the story about how the Navy's V-12 program literally saved uh, a small Midwest men's college uh, during the Second World War is near and dear to our hearts. Um, the fact that Notre Dame, almost alone among elite universities during the height of the Vietnam War, uh, never considered uh, disestablishing its ROTC programs. Uh, and finally, for me, a really memorable moment was uh, when Father Hesper, a long time president of the University of Notre Dame and uh, one of the greatest proponents of maintaining a close relationship between uh, Our Lady's University um, and the U.S. military uh, was named an honorary chaplain in the U.S. Navy mm -hmm. uh, about a year and a half uh, before he died. I think that ceremony yeah. was the uh, uh, last public event uh, that he uh, did. But these high points in history uh, should not obscure the fact that Notre Dame's relationship with the military uh, and the national security community uh, more generally uh, is an ongoing uh, and constant thing. Uh, thousands uh, of Notre Dame alums, lots of them military, but increasingly uh, many of them civilian, uh, have gone on to uh, serve in uniform or serve, in, serve as civilians um, uh, in our nation's uh, national defense. But today's speaker um, is really special. Uh, Admiral Chris Grady, fighting Irish class uh, of 1984, and uh, former captain uh, of the Notre Dame fencing team. And it was a, a, a thrill to uh, yeah, see, see you last yesterday. night yeah. uh, at uh, fencing practice uh, with the, uh, the current uh, fencing team, uh, which is uh, really uh, sort of tearing uh, things up. Admiral Grady, uh, in addition to uh, his distinction uh, on the, uh, the fencing field, uh, is also uh, Notre Dame's highest-ranking military officer, four-star uh, flag officer. He's currently commander of U.S. Fleet Forces Command, a very important command, which he'll uh, say a little bit uh, about uh, in his uh, remarks. Um, but he's risen uh, through the white ranks as a surface warfare officer, uh, holding uh, an increasingly <coughs> Uh, important uh, series of commands uh, and uh, assignments. And my wife and I uh, had the privilege of first meeting uh, Chris and Christine Grady in Rome last fall uh, when he gave a talk at the uh, Notre Dame uh, Rome Center uh, uh, over uh, spring break. Um, and so it's without further ado, but also uh, with great admiration that I ask you to join me and giving a warm Notre Dame welcome to Admiral Chris Grady. Well, 
thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that introduction. I don't know whether this is on or whether I have to do anything. Can you all hear me over there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, and Mike, thanks for that introduction and inviting me to speak again here at the Notre Dame International Security Center. And it is fitting, I think, that um, that we speak a little bit about uh, about Veterans Day. So I would ask any other veterans here to stand or just raise your hand so we can acknowledge your service to the country, if I could, please. So, please. How important is that on the 11th day, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month uh, in 1918, a century ago, when we thought we had ended the war to end all wars, maybe too optimistically, um, and the fact that there is a Notre Dame International Security Center and that I am still here in uniform speaks to the fact that perhaps that was a bit optimistic, um, but that we need to continue to be resolute and press on. So certainly I am thrilled to be here today back in South Bend and visiting my alma mater. And for those of you who are alum or will be alum, you know that uh, coming back to campus here is really like coming home. And um, although there's a lot of new building here that I'm, you know, I, 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 do, I do struggle getting around a lot. Um, thank gosh for your team helping me get over here. But uh, it does feel like home and, um, and that is for sure. And as Mike said, this is in fact my second time having the pleasure to join with the NDISC forum first, uh, as, as you say, about a year ago in, uh, in Rome. And I come back this morning because I wholeheartedly support the idea of NDISC. And as you know, it serves as a forum where leading scholars in national security, uh, maybe practitioners in national security, can come together and explore the most pressing issues and national security issues. And as Mike says, his theory of the fight, you know, how he thinks about it, is to leverage Notre Dame's very strong connection with the military to bridge the gap between prominent thinkers in academia with policymakers and practitioners at the Pentagon and elsewhere in Washington, and I suspect globally too, uh, given what you're doing in Rome as, a, as an example. Mike pointed out the, the, one of the more fitting examples of that with Father Corby, and for those of you who haven't been to Gettysburg and seen that and walked that hallowed ground, you need to do it. We took our sons to Gettysburg I think when they were in middle school and high school, and we did it on the day of the charge, Pickett's charge, and walked up, and uh, that's pretty eye-opening and sobering. And then you walk over and you see Father Corby. So, and I think it's also fitting too. This is a space that Notre Dame should play in, and for years we did not. So we had the Croc Center, and um, uh, we pushed folks like me out into the field uh, to spread the uh, the the word that uh, of what Notre Dame does and how exceptional we are. Um, but this is a space that we need to play in to help shape uh, our environment. And it's important then the work that Mike does, as well as what Notre Dame does in general for the community. And certainly Notre Dame has indeed a very long relationship with the military and especially the Navy. I would have to say that wearing this uniform. And I tell you that the connection between Notre Dame and the Navy is as strong uh, and as special as ever. And so I would take as evidence the fact that besides me, there are currently three other flag officers who are proud Notre Dame alum still serving. Uh, my good friend Scott Sterney, class of 83, he is the commander of our U.S. 5th Fleet, and so we were colleagues when I was the 6th Fleet commander and he was the 5th Fleet commander. Matt Winters in our class, class of 84, um, and he runs the Joint Strike Fighter program for the Navy, the most 
expensive, but indeed the most significant new acquisition program we have in the, uh, in the DOD. And then Bill Houston is a submariner of some repute, and uh, he is the deputy director on the STRATCOM staff, the strategic command staff. So um, take great pride in the fact that your unit, which puts out about 25 new naval officers and Marine Corps officers a year, um, is contributing in this space that is so important and having been burnished and forged uh, not just by the sea, as we say in the Navy, but by what, uh, by what Notre Dame brings to us during our four years here. Now, some of you have recently seen in the news that a force of 50,000 sailors and Marines from the United States and 30 NATO members and partners, including the Harry S. Truman Carrier Strike Group and the Iwo Jima Amphibious Readiness Group, just concluded the NATO exercise Trident Juncture off the coast of Norway and in the high north. This exercise was designed to demonstrate NATO capability and resolve, and the fighting Irish were there. Katie Griffin, Notre Dame class of 13, and Aaron Hanready, class of 14, are both deployed in Harry S. Truman right now. They are nuclear-trained surface warfare officers, and they're doing really well. During the exercise, they steamed Truman through the vest fjords of uh, Norway, where Truman launched nearly 100 sorties a day for over two weeks north of the Arctic Circle for the first time since the Cold War. And you can imagine the message that that sends. And so this is just one example of how your fighting Irish are far forward defending U.S. interests around the world on watch 24-7, 365. So that strong, that special bond between the Navy and Notre Dame is rooted in common values of service and sacrifice that these two great institutions share. God, country, Notre Dame, the motto inscribed over the east door of the Basilica, I think that well reflects how we in uniform, how you feel about our role within this great experience, an experiment in democracy that is America. And I think Father Jenkins best summarized uh, these values when he recently told all of the ROTC midshipmen, he said, quote, our lives should be more than about ourselves. They should be about service to God, service to country, and service to our university. And I think Notre Dame has long embodied those values, contributing almost 12,000 officers to the United States during World War II alone, and being amongst the first universities to host ROTC units on the campus starting in the 1950s. And indeed, this close connection not only includes myself, a proud graduate of the class of 1984, but my son Nick, who is a proud graduate of the class of 2012, and he himself is a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy, a fifth generation Grady, so it's kind of the family business, right? So there's me, there's Nick, there's me, there's my dad who was a naval officer and had command. His granddad was a, was a Marine, or his father was a Marine. We don't talk about him too much, but, uh, <laughs> right. and then uh, his father uh, was also a naval officer in the Spanish-American War. So it is then that this bond, this undeniable connection between God, country, and Notre Dame, and the Navy's core values of honor, courage, and commitment continues, and I couldn't be more proud of it. So let me tell you a little bit about what your Navy's been up to. Today, your Navy, has nearly 100 battle force ships deployed uh, around the world and embedded right with them are nearly 23,000 Marines. In the East China Sea, the Ronald Reagan Carrier Strike Group just wrapped up the bilateral exercise Keen Sword with our Japanese allies. Today we have 10 fast attack submarines and two guided missile submarines forward deployed around the world 
most of them conducting very classified missions vital to national security. I'd tell you about them, but then I'd have to kill you. So uh, uh, kind of not what we want to do today. And our newest and most lethal type of fast attacks, the Virginia class, are being delivered at about a rate of two per year, including the newest, the USS Indiana, which I think is uh, something near and dear to our hearts right here. In addition to that, our uh, ballistic missile submarine force on watch 24-7, 365, providing the most lethal and survivable leg of the nuclear triad. They're on watch right now. So additionally, the sailors and marines of the WASP and amphibious strike group are deployed right now off the coast of Tinian in the northern Marianas Islands, providing support in the wake of Typhoon U2. The 13th Marine Expeditionary Unit of the Essex Amphibious are, is operating in disaggregate fashion across two numbered fleets and three combatant commanders. Included in that 13th MU are Kelsey Hutchinson, Pat Gallagher, and Jake Perryman of the class of 15, right here from Notre Dame, and Michael Falvey of the class of 14. Their current deployment includes the first use of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter in combat, dropping live ordnance from Essex in support of our operations in Afghanistan, and to this day they continue to fly both in Afghanistan and over Syria in combat. USS Anchorage is currently deployed in the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, quite the hot spot now, and we can talk about that if you like later. They are providing special operations forces to, or support to our special operations forces in Libya uh, as part of Odyssey Resolve. And other elements of the 13MU just completed a bilateral exercise with uh, our Italian counterparts aimed at improving their high-end capabilities. So just a few examples, along with thousands of sailors and Marines Four deployed in ships, submarines, aircraft squadrons, SEAL teams, and many, many more. So the world around us is a rapidly changing place. We live in an increasingly complex global security environment characterized by overt challenges to the free and open international order and the reemergence of long-term strategic competition between nations. Indeed, we see this as a return to great power competition. Our adversaries aim to contest our geopolitical advantages and change the international order in their favor. They seek to supplant the United States as the global partner of choice. I think it is fundamentally a political contest where we witness threats to the stability and autonomy of the international order of our partners and our allies around the world. And our adversaries threaten the ability to operate freely in critical commercial zones during peacetime as in war. It truly is an era of continuous competition. In fact, when talking about this new era of great power, power competition, this return to great power competition, we use the phrase two plus three, and I'll explain that for you. We used to describe the global security environment as four plus one, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, violent extremist organizations. Now it's two plus three. China and Russia are our two great power competitors with Iran, North Korea, and violent extremist organizations still challenging the international order. Russia, I would say a declining power is more of a short-term challenge. You can just look at their activities over the last 10 years or so for hostile intent, if you will. We saw them conduct cyber attacks in the Baltics in 2008. Of course, the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014, recent poisoning attacks in the UK and potentially meddling in our election in 2016. Militarily, however, and particularly in the undersea domain, they have undergone a significant rearmament program over the last decade 
fielding some very exquisite technology, including such things as the Severodinsk-class submarine and the caliber family of weapon systems that it, uh, brings long-range land attack cruise missiles to, uh, uh, to the table. This caliber weapon system is proliferated across a large array of their platforms. They have taken the idea of distributed, excuse me, of distributed lethality, which is a U.S. Navy concept, and run with it just as we are. They also have their own version of a fifth generation fighter like the Joint Strike Fighter. I'll also note for those of you who weren't paying attention closely that they recently signed a 50 year lease for a military outpost in Tartus, Syria. And that gives them options outside of the Black Sea and in the Eastern Med. China, on the other hand, is a rising power with the economic strength to back it up. And they take the long view. And I would say that they are our long term pacing military challenge. I like to think of them as the zombie horde, right? They've launched over 100 warships in the last decade, including some pretty good kit, uh, like their Yuan-class submarines and uh, Yuan-class submarines and Luyang-class destroyers, and they, in fact, have their own version of a Joint Strike Fighter, uh, fifth-generation aircraft. They also threaten because of their pursuit of capabilities designed to contest our access in times of crisis. Notice I didn't say deny our access, because they're not going to be able to do that. I'm just telling you right now. Um, so with their anti-ship cruise missiles and ballistic missile systems, this is what they attempt to do. And many don't realize that they are aggressively pursuing the weaponization of space to deny our ability to see, sense, and hear. And we must keep pace with the changes in the character of this competition. So for the military in particular, when you go from 4 plus 1 to 2 plus 3, it's a real paradigm shift for us. It's a little bit back to the future for old goats like me and you, um, but uh, it's a shift really from coin, from counterinsurgency to one of the high-end fight, from four plus one to two plus three. And, at the, and the nature, I think, of this high-end fight has changed. I think if we were having this discussion 10 years ago, if I were standing here 10 years ago, we would be talking about delivering power projection, right? We are really good at delivering power projection. 44 strike fighters coming off the deck of, uh, of the carrier, Thousands of devil dogs flowing out of our big deck amphibs. Throw some tomahawks in there, and we are, we are the world's best at that, and we've been doing it for 20 years. Now, our adversaries have watched that, and they have learned. And so here we are 10 years later, and now we must talk about sea control and power projection. Sea control can no longer be assumed. Another way to look at it is we are contested across all of the domains. And if you use a football analogy, which I think is appropriate for today, I would say that 10 years ago, the score was probably 35 nothing at halftime. And here we are in the fourth quarter, and it's probably 35-30. And so we have to maintain that. So we need that last second drive, and then we're going to have to keep winning into, into overtime. The necessity then, I think, is a renewed focus on improved multi-domain lethality and preparedness for war. I think another characteristic of the strategic environment that we now must realize is that the homeland is no longer a sanctuary. You know, we used to think of the waters surrounding uh, the United States, we used to think of the waters as moats, right, protecting us from attack. Now we think them more as roads leading to our shores and more dangerously as attack vectors. So we in the Navy now give much more thoughtful consideration to how we defend the homeland. And as the Navy's varsity away team, the nation's varsity away team, and as the nation's global team, we will defend far forward because that's what we do. So let's take a quick look at that playing field. We see that more than 70% of the planet is covered in water, 
80% of the world's population lives within the coastline. 90% of all trade travels by sea. 99% of all data that you use, either on your computers or on your phones, travels on cables that are on the bottom of the ocean. So to maintain our prosperity and security, our influence in an increasingly interconnected world, we must defend our interest in the global commons. Now the good news is our leaders in the Pentagon understand that we are in a maritime era. And they have what is essentially a maritime strategy in their most recently published national defense strategy. So if you take a moment to read it, you will see these elements of defend far forward and how it is a maritime era, era and a maritime strategy. It's useful, I think, to look at how your Navy contributes rather uniquely, Navy and Marine Corps, I would say, rather uniquely across the services to all elements of power. And uh, we use the construct dime, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. So diplomatically, all I have to do is say, think of 100,000 tons of diplomacy, that carrier sitting off the coast of a potential adversary, and imagine how that shapes diplomatic relations. Pretty potent. In the information space, we challenge regimes that don't adhere to the international order. So freedom of navigation op operations, things like you see in the South China Sea around islands that are built out of sand. Uh, we challenge the Great Wall of Sand, as Admiral Harris called it, by steaming our ships through those areas that uh, they have false claims to. Clearly in the military domain, we're quite proud of the options that we can bring as America's varsity away team, as the global team. And that gives options, I think, to, um, to our national command authority. And finally, in the economic lane, one of the core functions, of course, of the Navy is to secure the strategic lines of, op operation, of communication. Again, 90% of everything you buy or sell travels by sea. So the bottom line here is that your Navy is critical in securing America's place in the world. So those are some of the external factor factors. So let's take a look at some of the internal factors. The ongoing dialogue about national fiscal policy results in uncertainty for defense planning. It challenges our ability to carry out a cohesive strategy for success over the long term. Some more good news on this, however, in that just this October, we started our current fiscal year with the Defense Appropriations Bill signed by the President for the first time in a decade. We've had the money on time, and we should celebrate that, so thank your Congressman for that. And defense spending has been up slightly over the last couple of years, which has allowed us to really kind of chip away at some of the readiness challenges we have. However, there is much more to do, so take that message back to your congressman, too. Uh, sequestration is still on the books until the end of 2021, and the 2019 and, indeed, the 2020 defense appropriations builds that we're going through now only provide some temporary relief. So overall, while things are good in the short term, I'm concerned about the fiscal uncertainty in the long term because this fiscal uncertainty affects our strategic planning, it affects our industrial base, and by extension, it affects our national security. And in light of these factors, of central interest to me right now is the readiness of our national industrial base. I think the industrial base took stock of the global security, we, the Navy, took stock of the global security situation and determined that in order to fill, fill that largely maritime character of our national defense strategy, the Navy needs a bigger, more capable fleet. And the number is about 355 ships. We're running in a little over 300 now. We need about 355 to do what we need to do within that uh, national defense strategy that I talked about. 
This expansion of shipbuilding and other new acquisition has received the majority of the attention till of late as it relates to expanding our industrial base. Now, however, a key theme to our current plan is that we aim to both build and sustain a lethal force across balanced advancements from capability and capacity, a balance between future readiness and current readiness, a balance between modernization and maintenance, a balance between the Navy the nation needs and fighting with the Navy the nation has. Thus, the Navy will seek steady, sustainable growth that achieves that 355 ship goal as fast as possible. But the public conversation about our industrial base should include more than building things. It's equally as important to talk about the current readiness we need right now. We tend to get excited about newer, more capable platforms, and, and, and rightly so. But remember this, 75% of our fighting force that we have today, we will fight with in 2030. We must sustain what we have now to defend our interests in the future. And then the issue here is the growth rate of demand for maintenance is rapidly outpacing that at which the industrial base can provide it. Why is that? So following Vietnam and then the Cold War, the industrial base experienced years of optimizing, consolidating, and shedding of excess capacity. Indeed, now we have, in almost all cases, sole source of suppliers for what we need for our forces. Scary. Right now, our industrial base is optimized for cost efficiency, which results in delays when friction is induced. Now, make no mistake, cost efficiency and appropriate optimization is an appropriate optimi uh, optimization objective necessary for survival during, excuse me, economic downturns. But I think going forward, we must reconsider how we are posturing ourselves in light of our environment. This should take into account both the two plus three security environment and that unfiscal, uncertain fiscal environment that I talked about earlier. So after winning the Cold War and absent a compelling demand for security from any strategic competitors, it was understandable how we moved towards cost efficiency. But of course, that was at the expense of readiness capacity. So now in an era of renewed great power competition, we need to rethink how we are positioned. I think that issue here again is how we grow our capacity for both maintenance and modernization and including an ability to surge when necessary for security without becoming cost ineffective or exposing our industrial base to excessive risk. We should ask ourselves this question. If major war comes, can we mobilize the arsenal of democracy as we did during World War II to rapidly scale our military to meet this challenge? And what we did in World War II was simply eye-watering. The American manufacturing sector produced two-thirds of all Allied military equipment in World War II. Some numbers for you, 86,000 tanks, 2.5 million trucks, 286,000 warplanes, 8,800 naval battle force ships, 5,600 merchant ships, 2.6 million machine guns, 41 billion rounds of ammunition, just to name a few. And starting really in May of 1940, FDR got together some industrialists to draw up plans for defense preparation and production, and that was only 19 months before our entry into the war. And it was led by, primarily by experienced industrialists like William Knudsen, the CEO of General Motors, who was working in partnership with those of us in uniform, and our job really was to set the demand signal. And at the time, America was home to the world's largest manufacturing base. And although not aligned for war material production, it did provide us with a tremendous inherent advantage over our enemies.
Now things have changed significantly in a few ways. First, we are no longer the world's largest manufacturer. China now holds the world's largest share of manufacturing output at 26%. And if you didn't know this, we were surpassed in that realm in 2010. For example, we now have significantly less capacity in warship construction than our principal competitors. We may be able to engage other industries to assist, but the cost and time required to realize such potential is, is daunting. Secondly, the nature of modern warfare has changed, as I talked about a little while ago. But specifically, with long-range precision weaponry and sensors concentrated on multi-mission platforms, everything about our modern equipment is more complex. It simply takes much more time and superior craftsmanship and money to build a fifth-generation fighter like the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, than it took to crank out P-51 Mustangs in World War II. Of course, the same could be said for things like nuclear-powered submarines and high-end guided missile destroyers. Lastly, the phenomenal advances that we made with just-in-time logistics are game-changers, I think, creating efficiency and profitability in all business sectors, including the defense sector. By removing excess capacity, they and we have eliminated costs. However, the unintended consequence was a narrowing of that supplier base that I talked about before. And this supplier base is unlikely to keep up with the surge in demand related to military mobilization. National military mobilization will have a much different character than what we saw during World War II. The factors of capacity, complexity, and streamlined supplier base lead us to place increased emphasis on that current readiness side that I talked about. And we must be able to fight with the Navy the nation has right now. So in this era of great power competition, we might find ourselves in conflict with little or no notice. You know, we were talking about yesterday with the midshipmen. We are back to the days where you keep your sea bag packed because you could be told to get underway in 48 hours. And that happened to, to us when I was a young officer four times. Three times to go out and chase Soviet submarines that had gone unlocated. The fourth was the Challenger disaster. That's where we are now. So this places an imperative on being resolute, ready, and lethal on arrival. So as a way of motivating those I lead, the sailors and Marines, I urge them to treat every day as if it were the last day of peace. I ask them, is every ship, every aircraft, every submarine combat ready the day we provide it to our forward deployed numbered fleet commanders and combatant commanders? Do we maintain enough of our non-forward deployed forces as ready as possible for unseen contingencies? Are we prepared as if it were December 8, 1941? Can we rearm, reload, refuel, repair, and reman? I think this last day of peace mentality is a valuable approach when considering our industrial base as well. And I think we need to approach this with a very strong sense of urgency. So in the end, this era of great power competition spans across the entire spectrum of conflict, from competition to confrontation and to combat. And I think it's also helpful to think of this as a long-term struggle. As our CNO says, our Chief of Naval Operations says, the infinite game. And winning this infinite game will require collaboration across government, academia, and private enterprise discovering innovative solutions as a team. And they will require a whole-of-nation approach to solve them. And so as I wrap up, I look forward to working with NDSISC as we win this game, because we're going to need your help. So that's all I have. Thanks for listening to me, and I'll open the floor up for any questions that you might have.
you want to recognize uh, your own questions? Yeah, I'll I just stand down. I got it. I got it. Any questions? Sir, yep. Admiral, we've got some back to the left. Okay, there. go ahead. Uh, thank you, Admiral, for your wonderful talk. Uh, now, I'm, I'm an uneducated citizen, so I'm hoping that you're very easy on me. But uh, some of my friends are worried that we may be brought into a conflict, like you said, this may be the last day of peace. Mm -hmm. But some of the more isolationists, or at least reluctant friends, are saying, I would want to go to a war over the South China Sea. What good is the South China Sea to me? My life has nothing to do with it. So, mm. how do you explain the importance of something that seems to be not so relevant to our national security and that another nation may have yeah, much more sure. that could perhaps some argue is not worth for the treasure that we have? Yeah. Does the number five trillion mean anything to you? Honestly, does it? Five trillion dollars in trade runs through the South China Sea. Okay, back to the ninety percent of everything you buy and sell. Um, if you don't think the South China Sea is important or the six strategic choke points around the world, um, then you need to rethink that. Five trillion dollars in trade going through the South China Sea. If that were precluded from the rest of the world using, what do you think that would mean to your friend who thinks it doesn't matter to them? Yeah, well, they wouldn't be able to buy any of the stuff that they buy now, right? And um, so uh, you could go, I think you could easily give a pocketbook uh, solution, an answer to that question. Um, and in fact, I think our entire way of life could be challenged by that. And um, uh, so I think that uh, uh, that alone should give you cause, right? And so the idea of defending far forward, of encouraging and defending the international order against claims of sovereignty and threats to uh, individual sovereignty, which aren't in accordance with the international order, that's worth fighting for. Um, now, hopefully, we won't have to do that. And indeed, um, I'm less concerned about going to blows because of that than I am about something sparking up that uh, might happen and draw us in. So if you think about the seven treaties that we have around the world, five of them are in the, in the Pacific. Um, and uh, we have to live up to those. So that's the, way of, that's the American way of doing business. So ask your friend, are we just going to abrogate that treaty and walk away from our friends and allies who get into trouble when their sovereignty is, uh, is challenged? I don't think we want to do that. That's not what we do. Um, uh, so you can look at it from the pocketbook example. You can look at it from defending the homeland example in your way of life. You can look at it from the moral obligation that we have in accordance with those seven treaty allies. Um, and I think you can make a very strong case that it's worth the investment in what we do and that sending your sailors and Marines far forward to defend those rights, not just for us, but the international order and our allies and partners is well worth it. Five trillion dollars. Big number. Thanks. Sir. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Uh, thank you for coming, sir. Um, I'm from India, so my interest is especially in the Indian Ocean region. And do we see um, any U.S. alliances there or treaties that might um, control the expansion of China? Like, do you look at China as a major threat in the Indian Ocean region as well? Yeah. The challenge is a better word, I think. Um, but... Uh, uh, and if you look at their One Silk Road policy as they work to build out their infrastructure around the world, um, that should give you something to think about. Um, I would also add that we used to call it the Pacific Command, and we now call it the Indo-Pacific Command because that, I think, recognizes the strategic importance that we place on the Indian Ocean um, and our partners there. Um, pretty refined and uh, strong relationship Navy to Navy there. 
you know, all their naval aviators trained here in the United States. Um, and, but this gets to that, who's the global partner of choice? And we want to continue to be the uh, global partner of choice in, uh, in that region. And um, uh, so I think we're working hard to, uh, we're working hard to do that. Um, now let's talk about China for a second. I think it's fair for them to come out on the international stage as a maritime power, right? And um, uh, they recognize that uh, this is a maritime era. They recognize 90% of what uh, we buy and sell flows over the ocean, including for them a big chunk of what rolls out of the Arabian Gulf in terms of petroleum products and, um, and natural resources. So for them to expand out under the international stage as a maritime power, I get, I get it, right? And the, you know, the Athenians did it, the Venetians did it, the Dutch did it, the Portuguese did it, Brits, French, us. Um, that's what you do as you, uh, as you protect uh, um, your own uh, self-interest. The key here, though, is to do it in accordance with international norms. That's where I don't think, that's where I think we're most challenged, right? So the Great Wall of Sand that's being built in the South China Sea, we can't, we can't accept that. And uh, um, uh, we have to push back against these challenges to the international world order. Now on that regard, I wish we had signed the UNCLOS Treaty. Um, we have not for a host of different reasons. Um, this is the UN uh, Treaty on the Law of the Sea, Convention on the Law of the Sea. The United States is not a signator. But I would tell you that every president, every secretary of the Navy, and every chief of naval operations says we shall. We would like to have signed it. And indeed, we operate in accordance with that every day. So uh, anyway, that's, uh, you know, just look at Indo-PACOM, and I think you get a sense of how important that area is to us. Let's go over here. Yes, sir. First of all, thank you very much, Admiral. Happy to be here. Um, seems like the way we think about specifically the West Pacific um, is you know, contact one and then search. Right. And homeland. That's the fourth. Yes. Um, so it seems like we've been giving a lot of thought recently to that contact in one fourth, mm -hmm. both the Army and Marine Corps side and the Navy side, yeah. um, as well as the surge separately. But I wonder if there isn't um, a window of vulnerability or opportunity for our adversaries uh, in between those first two phases and collapse. Uh, yeah. Should we be concerned about the time it takes for the war winning surge to get over to the West? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. So for those of you who don't understand uh, or aren't cognizant for uh, what our colleague is talking about, within the NDS, the National Defense Strategy, that strategy which I told you is very maritime in its, in its flavor, uh, the Secretary of Defense talks about our forces in, in terms of synchronizing our presence of posture around the world as contact forces. Those are they're there when we need them, where we need them. Blunt forces to kind of stop the initial attack and then the surge to come in and finish the job. So I ask you, first of all, who's doing that more than anybody else? Right, it's, it's big honking pieces of steel that, uh, that we drive, right? And uh, so when I say that we are America's varsity away team, America's global team, um, we are the contact and blunt forces. And, and indeed, uh, further in, uh, our, uh, our colleagues and the other services are there as well. But I think we are the ringing example of that. So the, our colleague's question then is, are we, is our presence and posture, does it allow us to do the contact and blunt piece? And then more importantly, can we get there um, temporally and in time with the surge forces? This is a challenge, no doubt. So that 355 number that I talked about, and I'm going to speak strictly colloquially to Navy, that 355 number is really, really important because capacity is a capability in its own right. And so if we are going to synchronize our presence and posture, we have to be there where and, wh and when it matters, and it's going to take numbers to do that. We don't want to cede any battle space because we don't have the assets that we need to, to be there. 
So that answer, I think, is uh, our theory of the fight in terms of defending far forward. It makes us much more successful in the contact realm, i.e., so to use the phasing construct of warfare where peacetime is phase zero and phase three might be high-end conflict. You win phase three and phase zero, right? And the contact forces do that. Then if that fails, then the blunt force has to be strong enough to take that hit and keep on going. It has to be robust enough with the right capacity and capability. Again, that 355 number is really important. I think if we get that 355 right, if we are able to synchronize our presence and posture around the world to achieve this defend far forward, then we can attack the surge force. Um, now back to the industrial base on the surge force. My concern is the rearm, repair, reload, reman, resupply piece. So certainly our job is to bring the gear from the rear and get it over there, right? And um, uh, the concern I have is can we generate the force that we would surge with the industrial base that we have now? There is one shipyard that builds nuclear-powered warships, just one, right? We have two dry docks on the East Coast and two on the West Coast, just two apiece. We have only really six major shipyards left. So this idea of building out more capacity in, uh, in our sea lift capability, that's not going to happen fast. And so that has me, uh, that has me concerned. Um, so we have to win the contact and blunt battle so that we have time to do the surge battle. We have to win phase three and phase zero, which is why the 355 number is important, why capacity counts. I'll just give you an example from my six fleet days before I came here. My very best day was when I had units in the high north, north of the Arctic Circle, in the Baltic Sea, in the Black Sea, in the East Med, and when I was really good, I had somebody in the Gulf of Guinea, which is an area of concern for us. That was hard to do, the capacity that we had and what we were doing around the world. Um, so that 355 number is important. Getting there fast is important, and then having the ability to fight with what we have now is important. Thanks. Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, thank you so much for your talk. So I have a question about uh, the artificial islands they're trying to fill in. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the military value of those two kinds of islands? Because are these not incredibly vulnerable to American military power? Oh, absolutely. Why are they doing this? What are they getting out of this? Yeah. Um, and, you know, cause to speculate. But... Yeah, well, um, so the, uh, the, the islands that they build out there do provide them a, a certain military capacity. So. Uh, to the extent that we can discuss it here, it allows them to extend range. You know, they put airfields on them. Um, it allows them to extend uh, surveillance range um, uh, and allow them to project power forward uh, better than they can now. They're not a carrier-based force yet. Um, they don't have the expeditionary combat power that we do. They want to extend their, uh, their front line, if you will, and that's one way to do it, just from a strictly military perspective. I think it's more in the information, informational realm where they get power out of that as they, uh, as they continue to build out and then lean hard on their neighbors there. They're not a very good neighbor, if you ask me, and so they lean hard there. And so there's power in that as they usurp the sovereignty within the nine-dash line, the tongue of the ocean, as we call it there. Militarily, it gives us great options. Those are not hard targets. And, um, and um, so I... I, I Again, to the extent that I can discuss it, I think my theory of the fight would be okay, you build those out, but that's just going to give me um, uh, force of response options that are going to compel you to change your behavior because they're pretty easy targets. Yeah. Again, Admiral, thank you for the talk and for your service. Um, Two-part question about Korea. 
Uh, from your perspective, what is your view on the North Korean denuclearization? Mm. And the second question I wanted to ask was the Pueblo incident, and could it happen again? And do you think the Pueblo is coming home? Yeah. Um, most of these questions I would defer to my counterpart in the Pacific Fleet. Um, uh, just a quick Navy 101, um, the Pacific Fleet commander is a uh, four-star admiral like me and uh, uh, home ported in, uh, in Pearl Harbor. Um, I'm, if you will, the Atlantic Fleet commander, but I have a, a much larger function, which is the force generation of all the forces that go forward as well. And then there's another four-star admiral who's in Europe and Africa. So that's kind of the lay down how I would do it. So Admiral Aquilino, I think I'm aligned, I know I'm aligned with him on everything, but I think this is what he would say. Uh, denuclearization of the peninsula is obviously a goal worth, uh, worth pursuing. Um, and I think you see across the dime efforts are being made, the diplomatic, the informational, the military, and the economic, to try to make that happen and to, uh, um, to bring that home. Reunification is a different story. You didn't ask that question. Uh, much more complex, but I think denuclearization is certainly is a goal that we have. Um, and why is that? Um, uh, just look at the, uh, you know, if we talk about fiscal uncertainty, um, you know, leadership uncertainty in the hands of someone like the leader there is, uh, should, should, be of, uh, should be of concern. Um, and uh, so anyway, worth, worth, worth pursuing um, while at the same time hedging to defend against that. And so I probably about as far as I can go. There's kind of two tracks that we're taking. Um, and I think Admiral Aquilino is very well uh, uh, synchronized with the larger joint force on how to make that happen. Um, the Pueblo incident is, a, is a, a very emotional incident. Um, that will likely be the last thing that happens, uh, I think, in, the, in what optimistically is a is a hopeful trajectory on what will happen in the peninsula. Um, uh, that's an end state that we would get her back. There have been some who have postulated that maybe it would be an offering, a bargaining chip on the table where we might get her back. I'm less, I'm less uh, sanguine about that. Um, uh, but it would certainly be something that we would want. Um, it is conceivable. Uh, I, I would be naive if I said it wasn't conceivable, but uh, for something like that to happen again. For those of us in this uniform, you know, one of the things that we get paid to do is to think about protection of our assets and high-value units. So a carrier is clearly a high-value unit, right? I mean, that makes, that makes eminent sense. A big-deck amphibious ship is a high-value unit because of all those Marines and the striking power that it brings. But our... Uh, our ships that provide us long-range, uh, wide-area, anti-submarine warfare searching um, uh, through the water column. Those are high-value units as well, as is the, the, the big ships that are going to bring uh, the gear from the rear. So we think very hard about high-value unit protection, and we have many mechanisms to ensure that. And so as, rant, as risk escalates, our calculus of how we do that for ships like what Pueblo was doing and what we have now. Are, are clearly factored into our theory of the play. Over here. Yeah. Uh, sir, I had a question uh, regarding uh, kind of a new policy put up by Secretary of Defense Mattis. Uh, I believe over the summer uh, he sent out the Truman Strikers, kind of on a like, not exactly a normal yeah. deployment. Uh, but I just thought maybe uh, Commander Fleet Force sure. could comment on how uh, that may challenge readiness and maintenance. Because I believe I read a paper that deployment may have thrown off maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what our friend is we're talking to uh, talking about is a, a term known as dynamic force employment. 
And so if you, uh, if you listen to Secretary Mattis, his guidance to us in uniform is to be strategically predictable right, and operationally unpredictable. What does that mean? Um, so if you look at the deployment schedules for a carrier strike group, um, we have a plan that is, um, that is pretty predictable on when the next carrier is going to go out the door uh, as we, as we uh, try to synchronize that presence and posture around the world. And um, so the force generation process for a carrier, you may ask, why do we have so many carriers when there's only X in the amount of four? Well, you need, it takes about three to one to get. You got one in maintenance, you got one in training, and one getting ready to go. And that's how we do it. And uh, so if you break that up, and that's very fun, to, that's very uh, elementary, but uh, it's pretty easy to predict as the carrier is working its way through the force generation cycle, that maintenance phase, the, the basic level training that we do, the integration of the air wing, the fighting as a strike group element, um, very complex warfare that, that, uh, that we do to kind of certify and graduate them to send them forward. It's not hard to predict when that next carrier is ready to go. And so the secretary has asked us to relook at that. And so what we did with the Harry S. Truman carrier strike group was we sent her out the door uh, at the time that you might have predicted. And sure enough, she went over into the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, she served uh, on the battle line for 90 days, provided uh, uh, about 100 sorties a day in support of Operation Inherent Resolve in the battle against ISIS in, uh, in Syria. For those of you who don't know it, the Navy flies a little over a third of all the tactical air. Um, we fly all, half of the command and control, and we fly all of the electronic warfare um, in combat. And so the carrier is an, an integral part of the, the air campaign anywhere uh, you go. So then when, uh, when she finished up that 90-day period, um, when we didn't announce this, uh, she came home to Norfolk. Hey, thanks. She came home to Norfolk for a mid-deployment voyage repair, right? It wasn't an end of deployment. We weren't stopping the deployment, but she didn't go where everybody expected her to go. And so she came back. And uh, for about 30 days, we plussed her up. And then she went out again. And the expectation was, I'm pretty sure, that she was going to go back to the Eastern Med. And what did I tell you? Where did she go? She went to the high north and operated north of the Arctic Circle in the best fjords of Norway for the first time in, since the Cold War. That's strategically predictable and operationally unpredictable. To change the decision-making calculus of our adversaries, to give them something to think about of what we're doing, to not be as predictable, oh, there's the six-month, seven-month, only about seven months, there's the seven-month period that they're going to do, where, they're, where they're going to go. So we are imposing cost on potential adversaries as they try to figure out where we're going and how to respond to it. Now, to your question about readiness, I'm not certain what you were reading, but what, what you read was wrong. Um, the optimized fleet response plan uh, upon which we force generate uh, all of our um, elements that go forward is absolutely essential to the dynamic force employment. And so within that, uh, within that force generation period, we, the nation, you all, pay for a period of deployment and sustainment. Right? And so you can do that seven-month deployment, but then they're still ready. We maintain their readiness for quite a long period of time before we then take a calculated risk to put her back into the maintenance cycle and do that modernization piece. That's paid for. So it's within that deployment and uh, uh, sustainment period that we can be and execute dynamic force employment. So the maintenance was done. Now we just change the calculus of our adversaries on how we use that readiness that we built. It's going to work. Now, I would tell you, back to a maritime era, who's doing dynamic force employment? It's the Navy Marine Corps, right? 
So that big honking piece of metal, that 100,000 tons of diplomacy, that was 50,000 Marines flying out of the big decks under the coast of Norway. That's dynamic force employment that wakes your enemy or your adversaries up. A little bit harder to do with the tank battalion. It's just, it, it takes a lot to get them there. And, uh, and temporarily limited in our Air Force friends when they do a bomber strike, although that's pretty, that's pretty potent. So the Navy, again, in this maritime era, Navy Marine Corps team is a, I would say, the largest element of dynamic force employment right now. How about over here? Anybody? Yes, sir. Admiral, uh, thanks again for, for coming. Uh, and thanks for uh, being a great representative of the Navy Yard. Uh, um, my question is, what's the ratio of combatants to non-combatants in our forces? And what would you like it to be? As far as the Chinese are concerned, how many ships do they currently have? I understand they have two carriers and they've acquired them from some other sources. Are they building any new carriers there? Um, so let's talk tooth to tail. That's what you're asking me. So you're asking me how much of the force is uh, the teeth part and how much of the tooth part, how much is the tail part. I think we have that balance about right. Um, probably not something I, a number I want to throw out there, but I uh, just rest assured that we that we have it we have it about right. Uh, and remember, there is that kind of one third, one third, one third metric of you got a one third of your force in deep maintenance, you got a third of your force training and ready to go, and then you got your third of force that's in that deployment and sustainment period. Um, you can take that right down to the number of flag officers we have too. Uh, the Navy has not added a new four star flag officer since World War II. So the, the flag officer to ship or, uh, or sailor level, uh, that, uh, that ratio is about right. Um, uh, the Chinese, on the other hand, um, uh, are building very quickly. Um, now the question for me is, do they have the sustainability in their own industrial base to sustain that, the, the tail to sustain the tooth that they're building at a, at a fast rate? Um, they have a very different economic model. Right, it's very top-down driven. There's no uh, FIDIPS or you know future defense plans, five-year cycles, the Congress. Right, they, they don't have all of that. Um, so when they want to make something change, they can. But where I think they might suffer is in the wholeness side of it. So they buy that ship right away, but did they get all the sailors and they get them trained and they get all the parts and do they have a shipyard to support it? We think very hard about wholeness when it, when it comes to that. Um, something to keep an eye on, and these are metrics we challenge. I think in the Russian case, it's far worse for in their case. So that's why I kind of typically uh, assess them to be a shorter-term challenge. But with China, with the economy to back it up, and as they drive to 2049, which is their big year, you know, the 100th anniversary of the, of the uh, party rule, um, they take the long view. So we have to watch that. Now, to your question about carriers, um, they, have, uh, they have one carrier that they bought was a casino at one time as a former Russian carrier. They had one carrier that they bought, uh, and now they're, they're indigenously building their own. Um, and uh, I get it. Back to the question, uh, the idea of being a maritime power. I understand that, and uh, we know the value of, uh, of uh, power projection and, uh, and big carriers. This is where they will struggle. We are, have been, uh, we, a couple of years ago, passed the 100th year of naval aviation, right? No one can generate 100 sorties a day regularly than we, like we can. So the entire operating pattern of the carrier that they have now, when they did their first deployment, 40 sorties total. We do 100 a day, right? 
How do we generate that? Well, it's 100 years of learning, right? It's 100 years of blood, lost aviators, experimentation, an industrial base, and a force generation base that is uh, unparalleled. Um, and so you can build things fast, but if you don't have the wholeness to back it up, then you know, how long will they persist on, on the outside? And, uh, and so that really does kind of get back to, do they have the right balance of the, in our case, the Navy the nation needs and fighting with the Navy the nation has? You know, I was just down in Pensacola uh, last week where we train our naval aviators, and it is eye-watering what we ask them to do. And the whole ecosystem to support over 100 years of naval aviation, to get us to 100 sorties a day, to be able to surge to battle flex deck when you could do that for four or five straight days, which we have done routinely, um, no one else can do that. They just can't. And um, that's our great capacity. Back to the industrial base and the importance of it. You had a question. I was just wondering how the our recent tariffs on Chinese products um, plays into your like, dynamic of the security of the more pressure on one side or the other. Yeah, I'll leave that to my colleagues in the Department of Treasury. Um, uh, I, I would uh, I would say though that uh, if you were to look at the impact of those, that's the that's the pulling of the levers within the the dime, right? The economic side. Um, I will watch it just to see how it impacts our industrial base, right? And so steel and, and stuff like that. I'm pretty comfortable that we can work our way through that. Now, on a related issue, if you don't mind me pivoting from that, though, one thing you really ought to keep your eye on are things like rare metals. Where do these rare metals come them from that we build? And um, what is our capacity to mine and uh, process those for our own defense industries? And if you just Google that, you'll find out the Chinese have locked down a lot of that. And um, uh, so that should be of concern to you. And um, so talk to your congressman about that, too. we got to get better at that. Yes, sir. It has been said that the Cold War was won because of certainly the leadership of our military and the leadership of our country, and that we could just outbuild them and basically run the Soviet Union into bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Why isn't that a possibility now with our economy having turned around somewhat, the new leadership? Isn't it just as possible that the Chinas of the world? will be outspent, outpowered by America, the economy. Uh, I think it's an, uh, it is an outcome. I'm not certain it's the likely outcome. So it will be, I think, in the case of the Russians. They have some significant, uh, uh, in my view, they have some significant uh, uh, institutional challenges there that they're going to have to work hard to get beyond. And, uh, and uh, you know, from, a, from an industrial-based perspective, although they build great stuff, they don't build a lot of them. And, um, and uh, so uh, China is the bigger problem. Again, they take the long-term view. Um, and so outspending them um, may be an option. I think it really, though, it gets back to our own industrial base, to some of the factors that I described to you before as we have shed excess capacity and we have optimized the industrial base. And, and again, we did that for all the right reasons in the, in the, in the kind of the swords, the plowshares uh, peace dividend uh, perspective at following the end of the Cold War. Um, it, and, and so I'm not impugning any of the decisions that were made, but um, the fact of the matter is now the, the capacity in our own industrial base, even if we gave you, if you gave us all that money, right, where would I go to build it? Right? That's going to take time to recapitalize it. So I sit in my office in Norfolk, and unfortunately I, I'm not on the waterfront. I wish I were. I don't get to deploy anymore. I just get to drive a desk. But um, um, 
when I looked at the Norfolk waterfront, which is kind of center of mass on the East Coast for ship maintenance, um, there are about 30 ship tops down there in all of the various shipyards and um, uh, getting worked on. And um, there are yards in that, uh, in that ecosystem that are not bidding on work because they do not have the artisans to do it. They don't have the shipyard workforce to do it. And uh, that's because they have optimized over time. Now, a couple things there. We need to be better partners, right? So this predictability piece is important. We need to provide predictability to the industrial base. Um, and so getting a budget in October when we're supposed to, hugely impactful for that, right? So that we can plan and, uh, and then give our uh, industrial base partners what they need to plan. Um, but I'll just give you a sense of, you know, on Monday, I had a great week this week, right? Uh, hopefully, it ends, uh, hopefully it ends at 11.30 tonight, <laughs> and I'm just saying. Um, uh, so please. Uh, but I started my, uh, uh, I start, we probably should pray for that. Um, you know, people always ask me, um, you know, you're in the Navy, who do you root for when you play Navy? And I said, are you kidding me? I, hope, I wanted to go my entire career without losing to those guys. And, uh, and then I say, you know, I pray for it too. And they say, how do you reconcile that? You know, how do you, pray, how do you reconcile praying to God for Notre Dame to win? And I say, well, first of all, I, play for, I pray for them to, to, to play the best that they can. But uh, uh, really, I just say, you know, God doesn't care, but his mother does. So, you know, <laughs> there's, there's that. <laughs> you know, there's that. So on Monday, on, on fr yesterday, I had the opportunity to go to our recruit, or recruit training command and watch 862 graduates um, uh, from boot camp. Unbelievable. If you live in the Chicago area, even if you don't have anybody going through that, you should it, it's an hour. Right? You'll, well, probably two hours because of traffic to get in, but you should go do it. I mean, it's unbelievable to see what, what, uh, what we generate. From the 1% of Americans who choose to serve, 1%, right? That was bookended by Monday uh, when I did the uh, graduation ceremony for the uh, apprentice class at the uh, Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Norfolk. 180 um, uh, men and women. Um, who for four years studied hard and were put through rigorous uh, practical examinations um, and earned their journeyman qualification. And um, that is an example of investment in the industrial base, and that's a Navy shipyard, but uh, the other ones do it as well, to get us to the capacity that we need. If you gave me all that money, could I spend it? Well, I could need these people, right? And um, uh, so it was pretty, uh, pretty eye-watering to see. So here's an example of, of what we need from our uh, young people, that not just the 1% are in uniform, not just the bright minds that are in this room that are going to go out and make policy and execute it later, but we need people to consider craftsmanship as a, as a viable career, right? So if you are a five triple X welder, right, the guys who do titanium uh, welding, um, on submarines and, and, and anything that involves those high precious metals. Um, you are a craftsman of the highest order. We have 30 of them in the nation. 30. The average age is 45. And they make nearly $200,000 a year. Right? That's what we need. So, uh, so could they? Uh, could we outspend them? Maybe the challenge, though, is if I had all that money, where would I put it? I have to rebuild that industrial base, and I need your help on that. Okay. Yes. So you mentioned the issue of the narrowing supplier base. How effective do you believe the administration is to I think they. Had, I, I don't know yet. 
we'll, we'll have to see. Um, and uh, uh, I think time will tell. I don't have enough data right now to give you a really good answer on that. It's just certainly something that, uh, that we look at. Frankly, it's not really in my job jar. It's in the CNO's job jar to, uh, to do that. But I think our refocused emphasis on the industrial base and, uh, and uh, things that might be impacted by uh, 232, um, I think uh, you will hear a very loud voice uh, from the department on that. Um, I'm very encouraged by the exec senior leadership, uh, civilian leadership in the Department of the Navy and the Department of Defense, and they really get it. And so um, we'll do the analysis on that as it, as it plays out. Um, and I think we will articulate well what we need and uh, how that plays out and, and adjust the policies and regulations to, uh, to get us what we need. Yes. Okay, thanks so much. Um, public discourse in the United States is very concerned about worsening relationships with our allies. But today you've spoken of strong showing in this mm -hmm. recent data of war yeah. games. And I just, we actually had a speaker here this week talking about how threats of American, uh, of abandonment of allies is very core to the principles of American policy mm -hmm. doesn't actually harm our allies and partnerships in the long run. Mm -hmm. Do you, what are your feelings yeah. about this increase, even if it is more concerned over diplomatic partnerships? Yeah. Um, and what effect does it have at all on strategic thinking? Yeah, I'm going to give you the military answer on this um, in that, and, and, and I think I'm somewhat qualified to talk about that having just been the Sixth Fleet Commander. Um, I think those of us who wear this uniform, the level of cooperation and working together is as good as, I, as, I've, as I've, I've ever seen it. And um, so we'll let the diplomats figure out what they got to do. Um, but in the meantime, those of us in uniform are working together like we never have. This idea of we have to, we know that we can't fight alone. Right? And so certainly within the United States, I'm never going to fight as a Navy Marine Corps team, and, and we're always together. I'm always going to fight with the with the Air Force, with me, and the Army, with me, and and the and the broader uh, and the broader expanse of the interagency. But similarly, we're never going to fight without our allies and partners. We know this in uniform, and we work at it hard every day. So to see Trident Juncture come back in such a large way, it's an example of how um, we are. Um, reinvigorating our responses to great power competition. It's similar in the uh, in the Western Pacific too, and I would tell you Admiral Aquilino works that hard every day, like I do here. Let me give you a very classic and telling example of that from a Navy perspective. We just stood up, restood up the Second Fleet. So in this era of uh, uh, before great power competition, and for all the right reasons from an efficiencies point of view, we stood down the Second Fleet about uh, around 2008. Um, we have now stood Second Fleet back up again. And that Second Fleet commander who works for me will also be dual-hatted as Joint Forces Command Norfolk, what used to be Strike Fleet Atlantic um, in, NATO, in the NATO parlance. That's an example of our commitment to the, to the, to the NATO alliance. Again, I'm going to speak from my Sixth Fleet perspective. Um, and so for those of you who don't understand how, or are not uh, aware of it, the NATO alliance basically has two big commands that do the fighting. They have Joint Force Command Brunson, which is in the north and, uh, and looks to the east, and then Joint Forces Command Naples, which looks south and east. Who was watching the back door? Right? No one was. And so we have stood up Second Fleet to be able to respond to the challenges that come from a revanchist Russia and a return to great power competition. And at the same time, we will dual hat them as that joint force commander, that NATO command that will watch the back door, that command that whether we're wearing our US hat or our NATO hat, will be ready to respond and win the fourth battle of the Atlantic. Right? 
That's a very clear example of our support to the NATO alliance that you may not hear about. So you can hear about the public discourse and take shots at, uh, at, at folks who make policy. Go, go, go right ahead. I'm just telling you that those of us in uniform recognize how important it is going to be to work together. Let's just talk about our special relationship with the Brits for a second. So the Queen Elizabeth, the first of the two carriers that they're building, the second will be the Prince of Wales, has been operating off the east coast of the United States now for about two months. Okay. They are relearning how to project power from aircraft carriers uh, since the, uh, they sundowned their last carrier in uh, about the 2008 timeframe. The strength of the relationship was so strong that in that intermediate period between when they sundowned uh, flying off Ark Royal to where we are now with Queen Elizabeth and they're going to, they are now flying, what are they flying off of their carrier? Joint Strike Fighter, guess whose it is? There's Marine, U.S. Marine Joint Strike Fighters. They'll get their own in a, in a while. They need us to do it. And in that intermediate 10-year uh, period, their aviators were still training in Pensacola. Every U.S. carrier, including the one that I had the ability to command during the, when I was the commander of the Carl Vincent Carrier Strike Group, we had 50 Royal Navy sailors and officers on board as they kept their hands in the game for carrier aviation. Right? Similarly with the French, they are really, the French, they, uh, they have the K-bar in their teeth. They fly uh, and have the only other carrier in the world that is like ours with the resting gear and catapults. And, uh, oh, by the way, where do they buy all of their resting gear and catapults? And who mans the resting gear and catapults? We do. So I would just tell you that as we respond uh, around the world, uh, that the military is working as closely as ever because we know we have to have the interoperability. So on the modernization side, we've got to think hard about how fast we go and make sure we don't leave behind our allies. We're just, uh, um, just one final question on that. Um, you know, one final issue on that, and it looks like I'm getting a hook here. But, uh, <laughs> well, not, not the hook, but uh, we have uh, an incredibly full schedule uh, for Admiral and Mrs. Grady yeah, today, so I don't... I'm, yeah, you're I next, want, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, fine. I, I, I want to uh, pace things, but yeah. maybe we'll take uh, one more right. question. Uh, and sure. Then, we'll uh, do one more after this things. final comment. So you're, as, as the Navy's varsity away team is the, uh, as the nation's varsity away team is the varsity glo uh, global team, if you will, the Navy provides unique advantages in the diplomatic realm in that the lines of communication between governments, which might be stymied because of political things on the ground and in capitals, never stops 12 miles off, right? So, you know, to the extent that I can discuss it, a lot happens to, with your sailors and officers that are, uh, that are in international waters. Those relationships continue. Those ability to flow information back and forth, those mill-to-mill -mill relationships that continue uh, the, maybe the weakened heartbeat that's happening in the diplomatic realm. When you're offshore, you can do a lot. Why is that? I think it's really because of the shared culture of operating in a really challenging environment. Sailors are sailors. And I could tell you great stories about interactions with Soviet sailors and uh, uh, about how there's a common language. So that continues offshore. Um, and, you know, it, it really gets back to, you know, to this is to yesterday we celebrated the 243rd birthday of the Navy and Marine Corps. This gets back to... Um, the culture of the Navy, which is, you know, take the initiative, go forward, and don't wait for somebody to tell you what to do. Well, what does that come from? Why are our sailors 
cocky and push back and Marines are, you know, like, I'll do exactly what you tell me. You know, why, why is that? Well, it's, it really gets back to our, uh, it gets back to our tradition, which said, hey, Commodore Perry, here are your orders. Come back in two years with Japan open, right? It's not a, and then just kind of keep telling me what you're doing. We don't do that in the Navy. And I think that translates into the offshore and the ability to keep the dialogue going. Okay, one more. Sir, if it's time for that. Sure. Uh, over the coming years, as the Navy begins to integrate the Joint Strike Fighter with uh, flatback amphibs, can you discuss how that changes how the Navy might employ amphibious ready groups? And yeah. How do you think about uh, the risk of carrier gaps in places like CENTCOM when you have this uh, new capability? Yeah, sure. And we're doing it right now uh, with the Essex. Uh, the Joint Strike Fighter is an amazing airplane. Um, it's a game-changing airplane. It's a super expensive airplane, um, but uh, uh, we'll we'll solve that challenge. But um, uh, what that what the Joint Strike Fighter brings to us, uh, not just as a as a as a weapons delivery platform, but as a sensor and all of the other things that it does, is game-changing. And I think that's why it's worth the expense and why a lot of allies want it as well. Um, and we're helping them with that. So. Um, a big deck carrier, 44 strike fighters right now. Most of them are F-18s. In fact, my carrier, that's all there were. Now we will start to transition into a hybrid mix of F-18s and joint strike fighters. Um, I would just tell you it's 44, but I think we have the capacity to go to more. Size matters. That's why carriers are five acres of flight deck. We can do a lot more there, and if you want to talk about that, we can. Um, this gets to the potential question of why not just build smaller aircraft carriers like the Charles de Gaulle. Okay, I'm going to tell you why. Um, <laughs> here, here's why you don't build small aircraft carriers, because they can't do two things at once. They can either defend themselves or project power. That's what a small carrier can do. So there's value in both of those. But if you want to have options, if you want to contest battle space, then you have to be able to do both. You have to project power and defend your battle space. And size matters in that regard. So back to five acres of the, of the flight deck, right? 100,000 tons of diplomacy. So uh, F-18s, we'll mix in uh, Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, we'll mix in UAVs at some point, which I think is, is, is an important part of that. Um, and that gives us tremendous capability. In the meantime, as Essex uh, uh, points out, but before her, the WASP, which was the first big deck amphib to have a Joint Strike Fighter, the Marines are buying the V-Stall version, right, the, the one that lifts up and then takes off, the V-Stall version of the, of the Joint Strike Fighter. I think, uh, my estimation is that as we think about the uh, construct of the amphibious readiness group um, and how we move the rotary wing, the MV-22 tilt rotors around within that strike group, we can get up to about 20, 22 Joint Strike Fighters on a big deck amphib. Um, now that's going to take a lot of Tetris pieces to fall into place as we move the sustainability around the strike group, but I do believe that we can do that. So now you take the 11 carriers that Congress mandates, we need 15, and we can take the 11 carriers that the Congress mandates for us in the, big de in the carriers and then supplement it with all of the big deck amphibs that have 20, 21 strike fighters on them. Um, and that gives you uh, a lot of power projection capability to bring to bear, a light carrier if you will. Now it would need to be protected. Um, but uh, it gives us a lot more uh, capability. I think that's where I see ourselves going. F-18s, you know, which are kind of fourth gen plus, you got the fifth gen mix uh, with, uh, with the Joint Strike Fighter, throw in UAVs to do some of the other missions, maybe do the tanking mission first so we don't use F-18s to do that. 
um, and then uh, start thinking about using them to provide ISR and penetrate into contested battle space to set us up for the rest. Um, and then you put uh, all that on the big decks, uh, amphibs, and boy, do you have 22 strike fighters and 1,000 devil dogs. That's pretty capable. That's pretty capable power projection apparatus. So I'm bullish on it, to tell you the truth. Great. Admiral, we've uh, worked you hard, and we don't want to put you in the barn wet, especially on a cold day uh, like today. So uh, uh, maybe we should uh, sort of wrap up the formal part of your uh, visit with us this morning. I would just say you've heard from a couple of our current uh, MDISC students, um, and they're really terrific. Uh, Eddie Linzer was uh, one of the uh, early students in our uh, program. He was uh, Irish guardsman, left under a cloud, but uh, we got him graduated. He's now working uh, as uh, legislative assistant to Senator Tom Cotton for uh, foreign policy. And you're an Army War College uh, MA fellow uh, currently. So this is the uh, caliber of students coming out of our program. We have some uh, terrific faculty. A uh, bunch of them are at a conference today. My colleague, uh, Professor Rose Kalanick, and I are uh, holding down the fort here. But we, uh, some of our other colleagues, Rose works on uh, energy security issues. Uh, we have colleagues who work on uh, rare earth metals and also defense industrial-based sort of things. Please. And they, uh, they really wish uh, they were here. But that just means you got to come back uh, another time and visit us. I need to say, <laughs> I need to say a couple of thanks before I uh, thank our speaker. Uh, first, Captain uh, Mark Procopius and his ex-XO Chuck Ditterbull in the uh, Navy ROTC program are great partners for us, not only on events like this, but I know you're having an office call with Mark, and I hope he'll read you in to the compartment for the NDISC small unit leadership exercise, one of the most uh, highly classified things uh, we do on uh, on campus. So Mark and Chuck, uh, really a pleasure uh, working with you on uh, these sorts of things. Uh, Anika Johnson, everybody who has any dealings with NDISC understands is the real brains behind the operation. Uh, nothing would work uh, without her. I don't see her here, but she's recorded. Oh, there she is. Um, but uh, uh, Anika, thank you uh, for uh, everything you do. Um, our uh, co-sponsor for this uh, lecture this morning is uh, the Office of Veterans and uh, Military Affairs, a new office on campus that you're going to uh, hear all about uh, from uh, Major Reagan Jones, who's uh, the director of that office, uh, the co-sponsor of our talk. Uh, and when he was the uh, MOI uh, at NROTC a few years ago, we did uh, a lot of other things with him. Reagan uh, earned a Purple Heart, probably one of the few people in OIF who earned it from direct fire rather than indirect fire uh, or IEDs, maybe a, uh, a dubious distinction, but uh, on uh, the eve of Veterans Day, it's worth remembering that, not only thanking you for your service, but also for the terrific partner you've been for us uh, in all sorts of things, including this event. Admiral Grady, would you accept a small... I picture myself. <laughs> a small token uh, of uh, our appreciation, a memento that uh, 
uh, will remind you that you have lots of friends uh, uh, back here at your alma mater. Uh, in our gratitude, not only for taking the time to come out here this weekend, but also for all you do for uh, our country and for Notre Dame. So please join me in the If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.